You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Cabarets have been an integral part of New York City's cultural fabric for over a century, offering a unique blend of entertainment, social commentary, and artistic expression. They have provided a platform for performers to showcase their talents and for audiences to experience a diverse range of music, dance, comedy, and other performances. These small, intimate concerts have also served as a launching pad for many Broadway stars, including Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, Andre McDonald, and more, who got their start in cabarets, honing their skills and building a loyal fan base before transitioning to the Broadway stage. The intimacy and informality of cabaret performances have allowed performers to develop their craft and connect with audiences in a way that, that's just impossible in larger, more formal venues. And here in New York, there's one man in particular helping artists find their voice on stage. Sidney Meyer, a little suburb outside of Philadelphia is where I'm from. And I live now in New York City for decades. And I'm the booking director of the Don't Tell Mama Cabaret. Sydney has been a cabaret booking manager for four decades now, not just at Don't Tell Mama, but also at Rose's Turn and Panache. He's also a performer himself, having won Mac and Bistro Awards. Now, Mac stands for Manhattan Association of Cabarets and Clubs. As Sydney can attest to, cabarets offer performers a chance to showcase their vocal talents and connect with audiences on a personal level and have played a significant role in shaping New York's cultural identity, as well as giving a home to many artists like Sidney. In today's episode, he shares the struggles he faced at an all-male prep school, especially when he happened to say he liked Judy Garland instead of the TV show Bonanza. He recounts the random set of events that led up to his first acting experience in Summerstock Theater, and finally he gives us the story of a very special act that he recruited to open up a new nightclub. And sometimes even the people closest to them look at them through different eyes after seeing them on the cabaret stage because they've never seen those aspects of them on any other stage. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. I also share your comments and questions at the end of the episode. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, Sydney. It is such an honor to have you here on the podcast. Uh, New York Cabaret is such its own entity in addition to theater. And so I'm so, so happy to have you here on the podcast to talk about this other world of performing. It's a great pleasure for me to join you. Now, Time Out says that you may be one of the most lovable men in New York Cabaret. (laughs) What do you think makes you so lovable? Well, I'm not completely certain. I believe that it comes from my uh, kindness to working with new performers and my welcoming them into this world. As we know, cabaret and most of show business is a very tough climb. And most of us are accustomed to having doors slammed in our face. But I guess I'm known for putting down a welcome mat. I like that. Now, you're not only helping other performers, but you are a performer yourself. And you started out in theater, right? Uh, Yes. I mean, I did summer stock and... uh, That's how I began. And then as far as the cabaret, how did you morph into cabaret performing? Well, when I look back on it now, I understand that growing up in that time, I was most drawn to what we would call now entertainers. And it was my favorite thing with record albums to get live record albums with all the applause. And as I started auditioning and becoming someone trying to get a job in show business, people would keep telling me, well, you're a different type. We, We don't know exactly what to do with you. And so when I came to New York, I discovered that cabaret does know what to do with me as it <laughs> what many uh, civilians outside of show business uh, aren't aware of is that cabaret in new york city is an open door when anyone any aspirant arrives on these shores whether it's from paris or pittsburgh or peoria the first door open to them to strut their stuff is cabaret, meaning before anyone knows you to put you in a show, you put yourself in a show. And this is a time-honored tradition. I mean, everybody from Barbara Streisand to Joan Rivers to Woody Allen, Hal Holbrook, so many of the greatest stars in show business really had their first New York exposure in cabaret. 
I agree. Whenever I moved to New York myself, you know, I was just, I was trying to audition as much as I could for theater, off-Broadway, regional shows, what, what have you. But one of the first ways I got to perform was at Birdland. And, oh. and, and they do a, a cast party every Monday night. And so that's kind of where I wet my feet as far as performing and staying up on different pieces of music, jazz, and just trying out different things. And it was a way to at least kind of keep my performing chops up to snuff. Yes. And the gift of cabaret, there are many, but the first one is that you can be yourself. You don't have to be anyone else. You don't have to fit a costume of someone else's. And it, it, makes it possible for you to show all the colors in your rainbow, meaning you can do anything you want to do. It's like that burger place, have it your way. <laughs> and in most every other area of show business, whether it's television or Broadway or motion pictures, there's a director, there are producers, even for the biggest stars that tell them what to do and how to do it and what not to do. But in cabaret, the only voice you need listen to is the voice of your own muse or someone you hire to direct you or guide you. So it really is a liberation that no other platform offers. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote by none other than Dr. Seuss. He said, why fit in when you were born to stand out? You know, us uh -huh. as performers, we can we can do what we do best, I think, in an arena like cabaret, because as you say, it allows us to pick our own materials, pick our own songs, sing it the way we want to. We're not being directed. You really can make the songs, make the performances your own. Exactly. Dr. Seuss was very wise. <laughs> One of my discoveries when I started becoming a cabaret booker, meaning hiring people to do their own cabaret shows, I was working with the people in the cabaret world who were basically only performing in cabaret, but not very soon after. I started with auditioning and hiring people who were already in a Broadway show or a soap opera. Now they weren't stars, but they were in the ensemble of a Broadway show or they had small parts on soap operas. And I was almost mystified at their excitement to come and do their little cabaret act for maybe 25 people at a $5 cover charge or whatever the it was, you know, 50 years ago. And I couldn't understand why they were so excited to do that, because in one way they were getting there, they were performing already in theater or TV five days a week or more. They were being paid thousands of dollars. So why was this so particularly exciting to them? But then I gradually realized that most other areas of the business well, it's improving slightly now, but for many years, of course, talent was a given, but you were hired because of your externals, what you looked like, what you appeared like, which, of course, may have nothing to do with who you are internally. 
So, for instance, uh, a gal who's blonde and blue-eyed and very pretty will always be cast in theater as a young ingenue, like in The Music Man or something. But when she comes to do her cabaret show, she's singing these get down rock and roll songs and heavy metal because that's what she really loves and who she is and what drew her to the business to begin with. Or for instance, a fellow who has a very dramatic face and who's always cast in a sinister way as a murderer on law and order. When he does his cabaret show, he's singing romantic ballads because that's who he really is. And sometimes even the people closest to them, from their agents to their spouses, look at them through different eyes after seeing them on the cabaret stage because they've never seen those aspects of them on any other stage. Hmm. I think that's wonderful that that small stage, a small audience, an intimate venue like that can give someone such freedom to be bigger and better versions of themselves. I think that's really wonderful. And it leads us into the first story that you wanted to talk about, which is you coming into your own as well, because you were raised um, at a young age in an all-male prep school from 11 to 17. And you said that you liked Judy Garland instead of Bonanza. I can imagine the response you got to that. Well, may I say I was in an all-male prep school that specialized in terrorism. And uh, I, I don't even think Stephen King could have thought of what was done to me. Uh, it was not a good fit. I mean, the school was very fine academically, but all the things that they valued, none of which I possessed. I wasn't a football hero or could play lacrosse or was good at chemistry or physics or Latin. And one day amongst when I, I've said very little anyway, but one day I made the, the tragic and fatal mistake of saying I like Judy Garland and the Judy Garland show, which in those years was opposite the number one Western on television bonanza and all my schoolmates and teachers, uh, I think were ready to deport me. And, um, it, it was just, uh, something that was, uh, you know, I was tormented about and teased along with many other things. And when I graduated from that school, I got my diploma and, walked off the stage and went into the parking lot, into the car. And I said, I'll never go back there again. Very much like Scarlett O'Hara, you know, and I kept that promise. But something very uh, magical happened that summer that I graduated. I got to see Judy Garland live and in person for the very first time. It was a pouring thunder lightning night and uh back then i don't know if they exist anymore there was a whole circuit on the east coast of tent theaters and she was performing outside of philadelphia in this tent theater the camden county music fair and 
my mother, father, my brother, and the lady that used to babysit for us all piled into the car, pouring rainy night. And we went to this theater in the round, in the tent. And uh, when we got there, the place was mobbed. And from the moment her overture started, which is a very classic overture, uh, the entire theater, every single person on Moss stood up, the whole theater clapping through the entire overture. And back then, there was a very uh, popular television personality in, coming out of Philadelphia called Mike Douglas. And from where I was sitting all the way up, I could see him across the way uh, in the round, uh, just looking mystified at the pandemonium. Well, in these tent theaters, there were like aisles going down to the stage in the round. And it just so happened that when it was time for Miss Garland to appear, she was walking down the aisle that we were sitting on. And everybody went wild. The show was fabulous. Clapping, clapping, standing ovations. I felt like I, I found my tribe. It was like, I'm not so different. There are people out there that feel as I do and think she's great. Was that the first time? I mean, you, you talked about being in that all boys school. Was that the first time you felt like you had a tribe of your own? Yes. That I felt like there were other people that loved this and loved her. And at the end of the performance, uh, she ran up the aisle during the bows. and as she came back down, because people were cheering so much to make an encore, my father, who was, I think, the quietest man on the planet, my mother, who was a gracious school teacher, always used to say, your father has an opinion on everything. He just doesn't say it. But anyway, for whatever reason, in this jam-packed 1,500-seat theater, he reached out. I don't know if it was to, to what it was. And the next thing I knew, I looked over and Judy Garland was sitting in my father's lap. <laughs> and he, I was like, my eyes went out on sticks. And I was like six seats in and all of a sudden he motioned, come, like, come, come. And meanwhile, the orchestra's playing, people are cheering and, and she stopped there and she's standing there looking at me. And I walked as if I was in a trance up to her. I, I couldn't believe it. And I had dreamed of meeting her forever. And I had so many things I would say. I would go on and on and on. And I couldn't think of one of them. And she took my hand and looked in my eyes. And I looked in hers and thought they were the most empathetic, sad eyes I had ever seen. And all that came out of me was, 
thank you. Thank mm. you. Thank you. And I I felt like I had met E.T. Or <laughs> it, it, it changed my life forever. She was absolutely radioactive. And as um, profound an impression as she makes on recordings or films, TV, seeing her in person, as it is with most great stars, they have an aura that is when there is not even one degree of separation. Do you, do you know what I mean? They're electrifying. And seeing her like that and that she stopped to acknowledge me, it seemed to validate all those years of ostracism. Did not only her music, but just music, entertainment in general, did that provide an escape, especially from the sounds like the bullying and other things you got at school? Yes. And through the years, as I see through the world, music is our friend. It is the universal language. And so many people who have no, no one else or nothing comforting in their lives, they turn to music. And music is always there. And music communicates a language that nothing else does. Mm -hmm. At that time, were you aware enough to be mad at them for the way that they were treating you? Or did you ever turn that anger inward and, and wonder why you were the way you were? I had nothing to compare it to. And I thought it was my destiny and my fate because of the way I was, that this was my fate in life. Uh, to, because to be bullied, I was different. You mean? Oh, okay. I was different and I was not accepted for my differences. My lack of being a conventional male, good at sports, good at math. And my voice didn't help. It was a, a character voice. And I was such an easy, naive target. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what bullying was then. And I think so many kids of all kinds experience it everywhere. And uh, it took me many years, honestly, of therapy after coming to New York to understand the deep hurt that it cost me. As you grew up, as you got out of that school, did you still feel a pull to hold back, to not show your full self? Or once you left that school, did you feel like you were starting to, to become more who you wanted to be? Exactly. I went to a wonderful college by a fluke, where from the first minute, everyone accepted me. And it would seem to be as if the world had put all these misfits together. And I was embraced from then on for the very things that made me a subject of ridicule before. And 
going to that school and everything that followed in my life uh, just continued the, uh, the love. But as I still never understood at that time, much younger, that those years, even though I left them behind when I walked off that stage with my diploma and thought I'll never go back here again to that school, I did not realize that the damage that had been done to my self-esteem and my view of myself was really something that would always be there unless I addressed it and made it go away. And that's what therapy did for me. Has performing been its own kind of therapy for you as well? Yes, because performing was the dream of my heart, as it is for so many people. And it's the thing we love the most. And even to this day, just being on stage and performing, I feel as if I'm still awake in a dream. We'll be right back with more stories from Sydney Meyer right after this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, you had mentioned about being in college and what a wonderful experience it was, but you actually were not a theater major in college. However, you did get to do some performing when you were there, and there happened to be a musical you were in, West Side Story, and it actually led to some other opportunities, didn't it? Yes. Well, this is uh, ironic. The, um, the prep school, when I was leaving, you know, everybody was going to Harvard or Yale or MIT, and I was not. And my mother, who was a teacher, took me to a psychologist because they just didn't know what, where I fit in. And when I spoke to this psychologist, this wonderful man recommended a school, Emerson College in Boston. And while the prep school and others thought I always wanted to be in the theater, they thought that was too frivolous. So the next best thing for me in this school was communications. I still don't know what that was, but I, I took it for four years. And uh, what happened was, because as I said, my popularity skyrocketed the minute I left my prep school. Uh, I, there was a vaudeville show that the junior class always did. And I became the chairman of it. And I performed for the first time, really, on a stage. I performed and everyone, it, it was a great night for the whole class and all of that. And then when West Side Story happened, the theater majors who had seen the vaudeville show suggested that 
I would be good in the role of the man in the gym. And what happened was I auditioned and I was cast. Now, at the very first rehearsal for that scene, oh, I was the only person, I, you know, the rehearsals had been going on for some time. And I was not a theater major. And I came into the rehearsal. And what happens is uh, the man in the gym, you know, the teacher, uh, he blows a whistle to stop them from dancing or, or fight or whatever. You may recall that scene better than I do at this point. But <laughs> what happened was I came in and all the theater majors who I was very, you know, in awe of, uh, they nodded at me because I was obviously, a, you know, somebody that wasn't uh, one of them. But they began the scene and they said, start. And they told me right where the music is to come out and blow the whistle and everything will stop and start speaking. Well, I was ready. I was eager. Uh, they said, go. And I walked out and I blew the whistle and nothing came out. Nothing came out. And the director is stop, stop, stop. Sydney, you were supposed to blow the whistle then. And I said, yes, yes. I know I was blowing it. They said, well, no, you weren't, but we'll do it again. And they did it a second time. And the same thing happened. And I was turning red and the people in the dance were like, oh, my God. You know, the actors, what, what, where did they get this one? Looking at me like, uh, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. They stopped it again. And we did it a third time. And the director was like, what is going on? And finally... The fellow who played Riff, a real actor, he walked up to me and he said, your finger is covering the hole in the whistle, so nothing is coming out. Oh, <laughs> so I then did it and it was fabulous. And I, we did the performances and I was wonderful. And the whistle blew. You could hear it to Kentucky. And uh, what happened then was I got so much recognition for being this quirky man in the gym. Uh, the man who played Riff became a friend. And I had no friends in the theater department until that point. And. That was West Side Story was the annual spring musical, which was a huge event at Emerson. You know, many great people had gone there. In any event, about two months later, one day I was wa walking down the street. This was in Boston. And I ran into Riff. And he, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to go and do a season of summer stock. And I thought, Summerstock, I'd heard of it. I'd been to Summerstock shows, but I, that would be a dream to be in Summerstock. And he said, you know what? He said, I just heard they need an apprentice in the theater to work in the box office. And would you do that? And I said, would I do it? I'd walk there to Maine to do it. And he said, well, call this number right now. He said, there's no pay, but you'll get to spend the summer in summer stock. And I thought, oh, my God. 
this is fabulous. All I ever cared about was being under the tent, so to speak. So I called my parents and I said, if I could I go to Maine for the summer? They're not paying me, but they'll give me board and everything. And they said, sure. And I got hired to work in the box office in the Deer Trees Theater in Harrison, Maine. And that summer, I flew to Harrison, Maine. And when I got off the plane, the director was there to greet me. And the first thing he said was, I know you're working in the box office, but one of our actors dropped out and we saw you in West Side Story. So would you be in the three of the four productions also this summer? <laughs> so how about that? Wow. I that started everything for me. And I was reviewed more than some of the people who were hired to act. That's why I've told young performers or performers of any age, just get your foot in the door. Just be a part of things. It's like those David Geffen who started at the mailroom at William Morris and wound up being a billionaire. Just do it, whatever the job is, as long as it's legal. And one thing will lead to another. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially coming to New York myself. You just have to say yes to a lot of things when you're first starting out. I mean, I was older at that time. I'd been out of college several years by the time I came to New York. But New York, I was starting at ground zero. I was I was nothing and no one. And I had to kind of just, you know, fight my way to get seen. So, yeah, there is there really is a lot of being um, tenacious when it comes to finding opportunities, saying yes to those opportunities. And it sounds like that you, from this experience, that, that was a big lesson that you learned about just saying yes to opportunities. Yes, and what people don't always understand is when you're in any situation, even if it is not the role or the job that you necessarily wanted, you get to meet people and form relationships and friendships. And those people will help you along the way. They certainly have done that for me. Yeah, I would say that networking is one of those things that I was never really good at. I'm, I'm good at, at taking direction, collaborating, being a performer, but, when, but that networking aspect, it feels daunting sometimes. How do you approach something like that? I was around before there was networking. <laughs> I, when I look back, I think that most every job or position I ever got was not from a regular audition, but because someone had seen me somewhere doing something. And I mean, just friends. You know what I mean? Just people who you were in a class with or this or that, uh, not with any agenda or calculating. You became their friend, just like this fellow in West Side Story. He, he just saw me on the street and he told me about this opportunity. Just if I hadn't been in West Side Story, I, I wouldn't have known him. And and then he and then I went up there and I at Summerstock I met more people who became friends and after that summer 
Uh, I got my first sublet through one of the friends, my first acting teacher, my first voice teacher, my first job as a waiter at a restaurant, all through people I knew. As we head into the third story, I want to remind you that the conversation doesn't end there. Subscribers get access to the full interview with audition stories and the final five questions included, where I ask every guest about their first professional show, personal lessons they've learned along the way, and what making it really means to them. Go to whyillnevermakeit.com to support this podcast by subscribing today and getting early access to ad-free episodes. That's whyillnevermakeit.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It really is all about surrounding yourself with people and not only getting support from them, but being a support to other people. And in story number three, that's something that you have been a part of, recruiting and grooming these acts to come to the new nightclub Rose's turn whenever you were booking manager there. Well, that's a very comical story. I had been booking Don't Tell Mama at that point, which is a very famous uh, landmark a club now for 40 years in Manhattan. And the people that have played at Don't Tell Mama, uh, I could be here all day telling you, and, and who have gone on from that little stage to win Oscars, Tonys, Grammys, Emmys, even a Pulitzer Prize. And they all began on that little stage. As I said earlier, it was the first door open to them. Well, I had booked this young girl at Don't Tell Mama. And uh, she came in, you know, as an auditioner and we used to have them, you know, this was before you could send out a video or a CD or anything like that. Cell phones, you know, people had to audition live and she was absolutely charming. And I booked her and it was going to be her first show. And we had a long talk. And anyone who works in a small business, any kind of small business knows how to multitask before that word was even invented. And when you work in like a mom and pop cabaret, you do everything, you know, to get the deliveries, you book the talent, you help deliver food, everything that there's there to do. Well, one day when I walked by the telephone, it was ringing and I often picked it up because it was a reservation. And I picked it up. Hello, don't tell mama. And someone made a reservation for her show, this gal. And I took it. And then the person on the other end said to me, do you know if her father's coming? And I said, well, no, I don't. And the person said, you don't know if her father's coming? And I'm thinking to myself, 
we have dozens and dozens of shows. I don't know if everyone's father is coming or their dentist or their uncle. What? But I didn't say that. I just said, no, I don't know if her father's coming. And she said, I can't believe you don't know if her father's coming. And I was just flabbergasted. And I said, what do you mean? She said, what do you do there? And I said, well, I'm the manager. She said, you don't know if Paul Newman is coming to your club. I almost <laughs> fell over backwards. I said, what? She said, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward are her parents. Her name was Melissa Newman. But what? there are many Newmans. Why would I ever? have thought i i i just don't and in all our talks together everything getting ready for the show and the contract she never mentioned it how funny uh, which i i applaud her for she wanted to be mm -hmm. known for her own talents so she did a number of shows at don't tell mama and she was fabulous and i have to tell you when her parents showed up when paul newman walked in it was like the red sea parted People were just floored. Well, this does lead to Rose's turn. So shortly after she had done several shows at Don't Tell Mama, the same owners of our club bought this club Rose's turn, and I was to book it. And it was supposed to open. Now, this was a legendary space. It had been the space of a club called the Original Duplex, which had opened in 1948. And through the years, everyone had started there from Joan Rivers to Barbara Streisand to Woody Allen. It had a great history. So many performers came to me and said, can I be the opening act? You know, many established performers because it was going to be a very prestigious night. You know, to open a club, you'd get a lot of attention in the papers and this and that. And they were all great. But I thought, you know, the duplex was famous. That space and that stage was famous for newcomers. And I thought it would be really interesting to have someone new to open it because that is the tradition of the space. So I called Melissa. And I asked her to come in and she came in with her director for a meeting. And I told her about this wonderful opportunity because the cameras would be there. The, you know, television might even be, you know, it was a, a landmark club in the village. And then it was having an opening. It was a big deal. And she was dead set against it because she explained to me her whole life she had been followed by cameras because of her parents. She said she couldn't even go out on the front porch because, you know, they were followed everywhere. And while she loves singing, she doesn't like the notoriety that goes with it. And I was really stumped because I thought she would be such a marvelous act because she was so, so terrific. And she was this blithe blonde and yet she was singing these dark blues songs. It was a very striking combination. And I was trying everything nicely to sort of nudge her and convince her. And finally, I hit on something. I said, you know, Melissa, I understand, you know, the shadow that your parents cast, you know, uh, because of their fame and talent. But remember one thing, 
you're not Liza Minnelli or Nancy Sinatra in the sense that people will compare your talent to your parents. You are doing something totally different. You're singing in a nightclub, blues songs. Neither of your parents did that. So in that way, you are being known solely for your abilities. And with that, she agreed to do it. (laughs) It's interesting how you're able to see through what she really wanted, what she was really hoping for with this performance, this nightclub, this cabaret, and you're able to hit upon it. Is that something you've learned over time or have you always been innately aware of what other people are thinking or wanting? Well, I feel, as all of us in the arts, I'm a sensitive person and I never ever wanted to strong arm or pressure anyone into doing anything they really were against. But I just felt, while I understood what she was saying, I felt that it would be wonderful for her to have this acknowledgement. And I really did believe when I came upon it that she wouldn't be compared to her parents in that regard. You know, she's doing something entirely different. So that was a very strong case I made and it worked. Well, what would you say is this criteria that you look for people to bring into this cabaret space? What is that thing that they have that makes them stand out and and makes you want to book them? Well, everyone has to start somewhere. And some clubs in New York are known, you know, as as very glamorous uh, places with a very high cover charge. And you're expecting a show that's a finished product by someone who's a star already. But don't tell Mama and Rose's turn. We're not that. Even though some great people perform there, people have to Find out who they are. They have to start somewhere. That's what Summerstock was. That was vaudeville. You know, it's, it's like a training ground. And I have seen so many people who were very nervous. You know, auditioning is a skill, like so many things. And I can often tell if someone is just so nervous doing it or feeling they're being judged. And one of the many lessons I've learned through auditioning is that somebody may have one or two great songs in their kit, you know, to audition. And you see them and they dazzle you. And you think, oh, this person is fabulous. And I'm going to call up all the press and tell them they have to be here for this opening night. And then... The opening night comes and let's say there are 14 songs and the only two good songs were the ones they did at their audition. And the rest of the act is such a mess and they're so sloppy and not together that the whole audience wants to jump off the Chrysler building. So I realized then and there that, yes, auditioning is a skill. And one has to do it, but it doesn't necessarily confer that other things they do will equal that. Do you know what I mean? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I've always said that auditioning is a, is a different skill from performing on stage with an audience. Your goals are different. The way that you approach the songs are going to be slightly different because the setting is different. Your audience is different. So I get that it's going to be different. How do you then know that someone is auditioning and they're going to perform just as well? Or I assume you've had those people that perform much better than they audition. Absolutely. There's a famous uh, right now. Uh, he's been in film and television. Uh, I guess it's still called a female impersonator, but he's an original. He's not imitating a great star. His name is Miss Coco. And he's been on television, on series and done a lot. And I remember when he first came to audition for me, but he came as himself, Clinton Loop. And he was so nervous and so tentative. But somehow I saw something there. And I always would rather give people the benefit of the doubt. And I don't have a Geiger counter that's going to tell me. And I booked him. And his opening night, he came on stage and he was phenomenal and fabulous. And he commanded the room. And I realized then it, it was just the act of auditioning, you know, on being on an unfamiliar stage and having two or three people watching him and judging him. That was a very daunting experience for him. But once he, so to speak, got the job, he was up, up and away. Hmm. I'm curious, as you have watched all these other performers come and go. You've you've helped book them. You've helped kind of either start their career or, or keep it going. Do you hold yourself to that same criteria when you perform your act? You know, so many people have said to me through the years, uh, you see so many things. There must be a number of things that you see that are sort of uh, not worthy. And I say, well, yes, a double day, not every book's a bestseller. But I say we learn from everyone. If someone is doing things that are, oh, you know, make you sort of squeamish, I think to myself as a performer, gosh, do I ever do that? I better not. And if somebody does something great, I think, wow, that's fabulous. What an idea. What an original thought. Maybe I can do a variation on that. So, yes, I try to do it. And just for a moment uh, that, I mean, I remember, I'll just give you some names. I remember when Billy Porter, he was still in college and he came to audition. My stars. And, you know, he's gone on now over 20 some years to be an Emmy winner, a Tony winner, a fashionista, you know, everything. But right from the beginning, he was this. He had this fabulous voice, even if he didn't have the style that he's acquired through the years or the great comic who's been on television for years, Jim Gaffigan or Alice Ripley, the, the great Tony winning actress. You know, they all did their first shows, just to name a few people. Jonathan Larson, the fellow who wrote Rent, who died before it got on and won the Tony Award and the Pulitzer Prize posthumously. I remember him coming and doing his show. I saw so many of these young people when they were just, their talent 
they always had talent, but when their whole sort of package was being formed, you know, and mm-hmm. as long as I see something just, and I think anyone could see it. I don't think it makes me that special. I think anyone with half an eye can see, but many people aren't willing to give someone like that a chance, but I have found it served me well to be a yes in a world full of no. It sounds like that that's something that you needed when you first started out as well. And so you're giving other people maybe something you didn't have as much of yourself when you were getting started. That's exactly right. You know, when I first started auditioning for cabarets and everything, the way it worked in those days was you'd go to an audition at a club to do your show. You'd sing two songs. They'd say, yes or no. And if they said yes, they'd say, okay, uh, we'll give you a Monday in June. They'd pull out a, a paper that was like a letter of agreement. Here it is. Sign it on your way. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about how to do it, this or that. But that's how it all worked. You know, as Betty Davis said, you learn the hard way. Well, when I became a cabaret manager for the first time, And I think this speaks to your question earlier on about that timeout quote. I thought, I don't want to do that for performers. I want them to feel welcome. I want to learn something about them. I want to have them to know that there's a person involved in booking them, not just a sheet of paper with a signature on it. So with everyone that came in from the first day I started booking 40 years ago, I sit down with them. I learn about them. I tell them about our club. I explain our contract because not everyone reads everything they should. And even if they read it because of the legalese, they might not understand it. And I, when I first started doing it, I thought I'm doing this. It was never done for me, but I will do it for others. And when I first started doing it, I thought I was booking these people for a night here, a night there. I never realized that I would have relationships with these people, some of them for 40 years. And that even to their greatest successes, they remember me. And I'm very touched that it made an impression on them. What would you say now? I mean, obviously you're still booking people, but what do you say to those people that either are just starting out or maybe they're they're nervous about getting started uh, you know they've tried theater they've tried other f- venues of entertainment maybe they want to do their own show what kind of advice do you tend to give those people do it do it look it's no secret show business is very tough it is a very hard business however If you yearn to do it, you can always find a place to do it. I remember once that a gentleman who always wanted to sing, but he had to be in the war and raise a family, and he became a very uh, successful, uh, he had a plumbing business. And he came to me in his 60s, and he said, I want to do this. And I have raised a family and I have a great business and I can afford to do it. So he got himself together a band and a great director and he started doing it and he was good. 
and he sold out. And one night I was at uh, another place, a concert, and at intermission, someone came up to me who knew me and they were with a friend of theirs. And when they introduced me as the, you know, the manager at Don't Tell Mama, the booking director, this woman, this other woman said to me, oh, don't tell mama, do you know so-and-so, this man? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, now tell me the truth. Do you really think he's going to make it? And I was so taken aback, but I said, I believe anytime anyone is doing what they want to do, they're making it. So in this business, one does not have to be on Broadway or at Carnegie Hall to have success and to have satisfaction because wherever you're singing, whatever you're acting, it's the exact thing, thing you would be doing if you were on the silver screen or on Broadway. Same thing. Well, it certainly seems to have paid off for you and the longevity of your career and just the joy. I can hear it in your voice, the enjoyment that you have both in talking about it, but also the lived experiences that you've had. And I greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing those stories and experiences with us today. Well, it's just been a delight for me. And I'm so touched that you asked me. Thank you so much for joining Sydney Meyer and me today. And remember, you can get early access to full episodes by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. But I never want finances to keep anyone from bonus content. So if a monthly or yearly subscription isn't possible for you, then please contact me at whyillnevermakeit at gmail.com and I'd be happy to offer you a reduced price or even free subscription. All right, well, now let's get to this week's comment and question, which comes from Denora Johnson, who happened upon Will Swinson's episode on Why I'll Never Make It's YouTube channel. Denora writes, This just popped up on my YouTube page. I have been a fan of Will's work for years. This interview is great for both of you. I know what he's up to now. What about you? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Denora. I have been a friend of Will's for many years now, and it was a great chance to talk with him and discuss his background and how he came to Broadway. And he is certainly killing it right now as Neil Diamond in the musical A Beautiful Noise. And as far as me, well, thank you, Denora, for asking. I'm actually about to join an off-Broadway show in the next couple of weeks called perfect crime. In fact, it is the longest running off-Broadway play in New York history. So I'm very excited to be a part of this show and performing in Midtown for the next few months. Well, that just about does it for us here on the podcast. I am your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media, with Maria Clara Ribeiro joining as co-producer. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.